Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S. For additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I want to just spend five minutes on oil, gas, and macro, because we've got some other subjects that deserve some attention this Wednesday. On oil, the problem is supply. Also, despite everything that's going on in the Mideast, the risk premium, in other words, the premium that, that comes from you know, Red Sea issues and whatnot is on the decline, I think. And the key risk here for the price of oil is Saudi Arabia has 12 million barrels a day of capacity and producing under nine. It's remarkable discipline. There's nothing like that discipline from Russia or the rest of OPEC. And U.S. production is running over 13 and went up significantly last year. So, as long as the Saudis are willing to stay 3 million barrels a day under their capacity, market for WTI probably holds in the 70s. If they ever change their mind, you know, it probably go down to in the 50s. But so far, so good. On gas, gas now in the middle of the winter is trading for $2. Again, the problem is supply. Again, on exhibit B, I'm just going to read off these production numbers. They're remarkable. Dry gas production in the United States in 2019 and 2020 was kind of in the 88 to 89 BCF per day. And we're all the way up at 104 estimate for 24. And it's technology. It certainly benefited from gas being almost $6 and 22. And hopefully it just slows down. One of the theories is that companies authorized completing wells that have been drilled but not yet completed or ducks and to try to keep 23 production from declining. And as now the rig count is down, you'd expect you'd expect production to level out. And hopefully that happens. There's no problem with demand. The LNG is going to be up two Bs a day. Power is up. It will be up probably better part of two Bs a day. So demand's holding in. It's just the supply is too high. There's all this political stuff from the Biden administration on not authorizing new LNG plants. But that's all for 2030 and later. The plants that are being constructed will continue to take LNG feed gas up by two Bs a day per year. Now, one of, one of the sayings is the cure for low prices is low prices. So hopefully that will get straightened out. The average price for 23 was 280 down from $6 in 22 and 370 the year before in 21. It's now the strip is running 260. The average price for 2025 is 340. 260 is very disappointing, but hopefully, uh, hopefully it gets resolved as each month goes by. U.S. cash flow statement, it's just not doing very well. 
I think it will do better, but but you know we'll see. They still have a, a lot of chaos. I mean, they have to they have to pass all twelve expenditure bills by the first of March, and that looks like a tall order. But the alternative is they revert to continuing resolution for the whole of the fiscal year ending in September, which when they did the debt ceiling calls for a one percent decline. So that's across the board including defense. So hopefully there's a political consensus that they don't want to do that and, and they'll start, you know, they'll make progress on getting the twelve bills done. With that, one of the things we like to like to discuss today is how we're all going to access whatever device we're on, uh, whether we access streaming or traditional cable or broadcast TV or whatnot. And Mike and Jason have spent a bunch of time looking at this and thinking about it. The companies involved, of course, are Netflix, which is on page four. Obviously, Walt Disney also on page four. Amazon has got Amazon Prime, so they're involved. When you get to page five, which are the traditional cable, and Charter's just, I mean, here, you know, for a couple of weeks ago, it's 370. I think Charter's stock got all the way down to 300. I think the problem there is that T-Mobile and Verizon, maybe AT&T, uh, overbuilt for 5G and are now offering kind of wireless connections at, you know, very low prices, you know, no contract, $50 a month. Presumably, that won't go on forever. But what happens when is that Charter and Comcast actually lose internet subscribers, which causes causes consternation amongst the people who uh, follow uh, Charter and Comcast. Comcast is a little more diversified because they have the broadcast business. But if you look at page five, out of their free cash flow of $24 billion, $20 billion comes from the cable business. So they will not be immune either. And with that as an introduction, uh, Jason, how or what do you what do you see out of all this as an opportunity uh, to uh, either wait for the right entry point or how do you assess how this is all going to work out? I guess on a long enough time scale, I think media delivery ends up looking exactly like cable. It just comes over the internet and through an app. Um, I see, I, I don't see a way around the industry not consolidating. That's going to have to happen. And, and the recent announcement out of, uh, was it Warner Brothers, Disney, and um, Fox. Fox, thanks. Um, is essentially a consolidation on the sports streaming. Um, I saw a stat that I think they're going to control that joint venture is going to control 55% of the, the sports rights in the U.S. 85. 85? Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so I, I think that happens across the board, um, whether it's live TV, news networks, or um, television and, and movie. So, I, I mean, I think it, there's no way around that. Um, and, I, and I think it ends up looking a lot more like cable TV did a decade ago where, you know, everything, everything served with ads. Uh, we still pay for it and everyone, you know, negotiates retransmission rights. Um, right now they can, everyone's controlling their own content and creating their own streaming service to distribute it. Um, and that's just not sustainable. Most of those businesses aren't making money. Um, and they're going to have to, 
they're going to have to consolidate. And I think that's how Disney with ESPN and Fox uh, looked at it. Um, the churn, I'd, I'd say I'd add churn is a big problem for these streaming services. You know, the, and especially with sports, if you're going to subscribe to one of these, if they were separate, one of these sports apps and you only wanted the NFL season, uh, when NFL season ends uh, here shortly, you're going to cancel that subscription until the fall. Uh, so I think they looked at it as a way I can lock in a customer to a, a full year of sports content. We won't have to reacquire that customer for some cost later in the year or next year. Uh, so, you know, in, in this case, I think this, the sports bundle makes a ton of sense. How will you access the bundle if you're a you're a uh, you're a user? Will will it all be one channel, or how how do you suppose they'll implement it? That's a good question. I don't think they'll have channels per se. Um, I think we move past that and it's more of just pulling up content, you know, more, more like an Amazon Prime or a Netflix. Uh, you just queue up the content you want and, and watch it, um, whether it's live or after the fact. And yeah, I think all of these content owners don't want to give up control to the big tech companies. Um, and this is an effort to put a foot down and say, we're going to do it this way. And you're going to have to go through us in order to get sports content. Um, yeah, I guess I was kind of thinking through it, There's the naive way to think is, is they're going to just have an app to serve it. Um, but I'm wondering if, if that's not end up, ends up what happens. Um, I wonder if they provide more of an API, if you will, like a, a tech-enabled service uh, where Disney Plus or Hulu or, or whichever app plugs it into and the sports are served to you through you know, a, a traditional retransmission agreement. Um, and you just, you just pull it over an API instead of kind of a cable bundle as, as they I, were. I kind of don't think that's what's going to happen. Okay. I think that they're going to, implant themselves in, as an intermediary to Google, Amazon, YouTube. But in order to get there, they first have to do their own thing. And by controlling 85% of sports, that's a really good step in the right direction to be able to control, to have enough bargaining power to work with the bigger tech companies. So I think in the short term, they have to do an app of some sort, um, which also means that a lot of this sports content isn't going to be on you know, it won't be native for the Apple Vision Pro. It won't be available everywhere. And it, it, the question out is who has the negotiating leverage? And, and I think the way things have gone are we've gotten to a suboptimal uh, maxima, if you will. If you think about it from a game theory perspective, individual companies profit maximizing for themselves decided that going direct streaming made sense. Well, that did make sense when you were comparing yourself to a revenue-based multiple that Netflix was able to achieve. But once everybody else is doing that, everybody looks at those businesses and say, well, does this business make money? And if you don't make money, you're not worth anything. And we kind of saw the rise and the fall of all that happen through COVID. So the, the challenge with cable and the challenge with streaming goes back to this bundling piece. So what you need is a 
maybe a suboptimal individual decision that makes the whole better off. And that's really hard to do. And if, if you are interested in this, reading the book about John Malone called Cable Cowboy kind of covers a lot of how they were able to wrangle um, the bundling of these packages. So if, if this Disney Fox um, Warner thing is executed properly, it could be very powerful. The, the question is, do they end up with enough leverage to be able to, um, to negotiate with the bigger tech companies? Because I think they're ultimately an inevitable part of the solution here. How, uh, who owns CBS? CBS is paramount, right? Uh, We're looking it up now. Yep, Paramount Global, yeah. yep. <laughs> and, and Paramount now is for sale. Right, there's a number of bids on it, so. Uh, yeah, and then the other sports, you know, you know, broadcast station with lots of sports is NBC, which is part of, part of Comcast, part of, and, and has Peacock. How, let's say that Fox has NFL rights and ESPN or ESPN and ABC have NFL rights and they're each running games on a particular weekend, how do, how do you divide? And they've each paid a lot of money for those rights. How, if, if with this bundle, how do you divide the revenues between Fox and ESPN, ABC? Yeah, that's the that's the impossible challenge because <laughs> uh, you're never going to please everyone. But you have to, you know, you could go the Spotify model, right, and just say number of minutes watched determines um, your revenue share. That's not necessarily a bad way to look at it because you have granular data on individual users. You can serve ads directly. Um, it, there may be other ways to do it too. Um, you know, for example, the cable bundles, live sports with, has ultimately become the most important part of a cable bundle and the most expensive part to keep alive. Um, there's lots of low quality television that gets probably lots of minutes of, of, of watching, but that's not what convinces people to sign up for a bundle. So I think the ultimate best solution is actually going back to the way things were done with cable, except it's all through one app and it's negotiated on a, you know, five year contracts. And sometimes there'll be, tough contract negotiations and there'll be blackouts of certain channels from time to time. But ultimately that's a better solution that, you know, the downside is, is that it probably means that there's only maybe only a couple channels that matter, um, you know, a couple cable companies that matter. So it, theoretically you could have it where every content owner also licenses to every other aggregator, if you will. There could be tons of aggregators that pop out. But there seems to be a, a perspective that the value will accrue to the, to the aggregator. I think if I'm a content owner, not wanting to make the investment into being an aggregator, I may push for licensing to everywhere, everybody. So that way, I the content's more important than the place at which you aggregate because the, the profits of the aggregator should go down to zero if you have multiple aggregators competing against each other. So uh, that's all that is to say is we have no idea what we're, 
what's going to happen. <laughs> well, if, if ESPN ends up as just an aggregator, why, if you're the sports league, why wouldn't you just sell the rights then to YouTube or Amazon or someone? Yeah, we'll probably see that happen. I mean, we're already seeing that happen with, right. with Amazon. Do you think that, do you think that these three entities agreeing to collaborate with, I guess they're, they're going to have something in front of their public by the fall. You think it's a sign that none of these three are liable to be survivors? I mean, it's a good question. This will either work or it won't. <laughs> um, and if it doesn't work, none of these companies' streaming projects are really in great position. That being said, Warner owns a whole bunch of assets. Disney obviously owns a ton of assets. Fox has a ton of assets. So maybe they're, you know, think about it from a negotiation perspective, the, their best alternative is just licensing everything out to other players. And this is seen as, hey, guys, let's try pull this together because we think that if we do this, the profits for us collectively will be better than if we went on it on our own. And, and that's the assumption because everybody's looking at other aggregators that have made tons of money and said, we want to be an aggregator too. The trouble is aggregators don't have lock-in like cable companies did. Right. Cable companies, you only have one choice in most cases. It's the cable company that serves your community. Today, competition's a click away. So I actually think that aggr aggregator position, if the content makers play their cards right, I'd rather be a content maker than an aggregator in this business. Right. Which stock would you buy? <laughs> Which stock would you avoid? I mean, I, I think that Charter is pretty risky, even though it's gotten very cheap. Comcast is maybe a little less risky because they have the content. But as I say, 20 out of the 24 billion of free cash flow in Comcast comes from cable. So, I mean, maybe you're a little less risky than Charter. I saw a snippet of information that I don't know whether the two of you can confirm that with all the use of, of uh, you know, people using their their uh, at-home devices and, and their smartphones and whatnot, that the amount of traffic is going up at some compound rate of 25 or 30%. Is, is, is that measurable? And does that number sound accurate to you? Or we can defer to another week and try to find a good... But I mean, that, that would be extraordinary if our use of, of the internet or getting things delivered, entertainment sports delivered to us digitally is going up at that rate? Or does that just seem impossibly high as a compound rate of growth? Oh, no. I, I, I mean, I don't know the number off the top of my head, but the, the growth in data consumption on a per capita basis, is an, it's an exponential function. And it's been, um, I'll, I'll find some more hard statistics on this, but it is why 5G was invested in. Right? Uh, these, these players wouldn't have invested in 5G if not for the fact that they know for a fact that people are going to consume more data. Right. Well, now, it is, given the fact that people are 
disconnecting from wire, let's call it, Charter and Comcast, other cable, to pursue a, a less expensive solution from T-Mobile or Verizon, where you go and get a box and take it home and pay $50 a month, what would you project? Would you project that the growth would eventually, in use of the internet, would eventually go through all that 5G capacity? I mean, if something's growing, you know, in the 20, 25, 30% range, I mean, that compound rate will, should take care of any amount of extra capacity pretty quickly. Yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, it's actually, the whole reason fixed wireless is around is because there's excess capacity. Right. Um, presumably, and based on the way they're pricing it, they have a ton of excess capacity. It should not be cheaper to deliver data to a house via a radio frequency than it is via copper that's already in the ground, already depreciated and paid for. But it is. Because there's zero marginal, I mean, uh, there's, yeah, you're adding another user to the net, a network that has extra capacity does not cost you anything. Um, but at some point that has to change. It does. Just, like, like when 4G rolled out, there was extra capacity and everyone said it was overhyped and why would I need the bandwidth? And then we used it all. So two years ago, you couldn't imagine your phone rolling back to 3G and, and being functional. Right. And, I, and I think we'll see the same situation play out with 5G. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. Do they pull back the fixed wireless yeah. modems? Totally. Yeah. I think they just raise prices until people get off it. Um, so, I mean, that, and that's where the copper that's in the ground is pretty beneficial, but also has some physical limitations. Um, although people have been calling for the end of copper or coax cable as, as a way to transmit data for a long time, and they keep improving um, what they call them multiplexers or whatever the, the way they, they transmit the bits over, over the wire, they improve that pretty substantially. Um, and it requires hardware upgrades and all that sort of stuff. And the cable companies have no competition, so they basically do it to the very last possible time they have to. Um, but that's just the dynamic of the market. Right. This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Top Mark Capital. They're not your typical hedge fund. They use a blend of best practices from value investing, venture capital, and private equity, which gives them a unique perspective on market dynamics. And the results truly speak for themselves. So, if you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative, emerging manager, visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. This is not an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. And now, back to the show. Well, we've blown through most of the 30 minutes. We better go news. Why don't we, since we've been in the front of the memo, why don't we do healthcare news first? Vertex announced their earnings and they were okay, I guess. Yeah, they were, they were, they were good. Um, their cystic fibrosis portfolio is, is just a money-generating machine. Um, and they, they announced that the phase three trials of their latest, they call it the Vanza triple combo, is, is, uh, is 
an even better drug. They, they keep improving upon their cystic fibrosis treatments. Um, the net result is they believe now they can treat people better at a younger age. They live much longer and that, you know, the quality of life really improves for the, the patients they're treating, but also those, those patients live longer and they have a, a larger customer base, if you will. So it was interesting. You said the life expectancy is now 80 years, right? Which is actually higher than the U S on average. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that assumes they're not on opioids or something, but it's a, uh, it's kind of an interesting statistic. Right. Right. So every time, every year they update the um, addressable market, the patient pool for cystic fibrosis drugs, and, and they, they raise it a, a pretty decent percentage every time. Um, and that's just a function of, of these patients living longer. Um, so the, the treatment's effective and, and they sell more of them. Um, on, the, on the opioid, on the non-opioid pain treatment front, um, a lot of press around, you know, it's not better than opioids. It's, you know, is the, is the market going to, to move to this drug? Um, I looked at some stats on, on the opioid treatments, and they prescribe roughly 80 million of them uh, a year in the U.S. And then we have about 100,000 deaths on opioid overdose. So just rough math. If you're prescribed an opioid to take home after you're treated at the hospital um, post surgery, you have about a one in one thousand chance, one in one thousand chance of becoming addicted and overdosing on it. Um, and it's just a crazy stat that we we take that risk eighty million times a year in the U.S. Um, so I I think there's absolutely a place for opioids to be used as a as a highly effective painkiller in supervised settings. Uh, but when these folks go home after surgery, I think a, a non-opioid treatment is, you know, is, is going to be the standard um, if, it, if it can you know, reduce the amount of pain for the given surgery that you've had. And maybe there's some cases that where you, you have to prescribe an opioid, but I think there's, there's a big opportunity between an opioid-level pain treatment and then you know, Tylenol. So that, that's the market I think this, this drug plays in. Right. Good. What about the front of the memo? Mike and I have been talking about the impact of China. You know, it affects commodities, certainly on oil and gas, but as near as statistics show can be trusted, oil and gas demand and other commodity demand is, is not really being impacted by a slow China economy. It's more a matter of oversupply. But that being said, the Chinese stock market has been very, very, very weak. And Mike has, Mike has a friend he talks to in Shanghai. So just with the remaining time, any commentary that you pick up about China might, might be useful. Yeah, it, it was a good conversation catching up with a friend of mine from business school who lives there in Shanghai. And, um, you know, we talked about the recent sell-off in this, the, the smaller cap Chinese uh, mainland stocks. I we don't know particularly exactly what triggered that, but in general, um, people are withdrawing money from the Chinese stock market, and that those, some of those companies are very cheap. Um, it could have been to do with something that Trump said about um, taxing imports at 
60% from China and 10% from everywhere else. Um, so it's hard, you know, it's hard to say, but if, if you're hearing people talk and you see this in the news sometimes that, you know, growth is over in China, I, you, you have to remember that the average person still lives on, you know, a very small fraction of income versus what we're accustomed to in, in the West. So there's still, even if population isn't growing, there's still a lot of opportunity for growth internally. So don't, um, don't sleep on China, I think is the takeaway. And then the next thing we talked about was younger people and not being able to find jobs in the cities. So um, there's certainly an issue with lack of opportunity and maybe maybe a group of people that are over, relatively overeducated for the jobs that are available. Um, the, a lot of people are moving back to, to tier two, tier three, tier four, tier five cities because it's a lot less expensive. Um, you could live in a city, um, you know, if you live in a tier two city versus Shanghai, you'd probably spend half as much on cost of living. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, a lot of reasons why younger people are moving to these far away, farther away cities. Um, so that provides opportunity as well. And there's a handful of the tech-enabled internet companies that do some really interesting stuff over there. Uh, one of them is called Pinduoduo, uh, PDD is, is the ticker symbol. Um, they also have an app that sells in the U.S. called Timu, which competes directly with Amazon and frankly has a lot of the exact same products because they're all made in China. The, the only difference is the Timu products are cheaper, but it takes you two weeks to get to get them. Amazon will have them to you uh, in four hours. So, uh, so if you're willing to say, you know, if you want to save a little bit of money and still get the same thing, you can probably just get it on Timu. Um, so I, I think that's interesting. Uh, we talked about artificial intelligence in China um, and the, the bigger tech companies. Uh, our understanding is that Tencent play, pays the same in China as any top-tier Silicon Valley internet company. So for the best of the best, that's the place to go. Um, interestingly, and maybe coincidental with the, um, um, the Jack Ma incident where he sort of disappeared from public, uh, entrepreneurial activity is certainly down. And it seems like the best entrepreneurial uh, projects are ones which the government is fully supporting. Um, so it's, uh, you, it is well understood now that companies are not to, um, and it is against their interests to speak out against the government. So we probably won't see much more of that. Um, so from a US investor, comfort-wise, all of that stuff maybe makes things a little bit more scary or challenging. Uh, the flip side is there's probably some level of stabilization there. Um, we talked a little bit about chips. Um, he, he confirmed what we had said is that, that Huawei is having trouble scaling the unit volume of that seven nanometer chip. Um, it, you know, it goes back to multi-patterning with DUV. Um, and maybe they run into some roadblocks there. Uh, and that's sort of what we expected. Right. Jason, anything more on China before we uh, break for the, for the 30 minutes? 
I'd just add on semiconductors, we've, you know, while the rest of their economy is slowing down, they, they keep ordering a lot of equipment to make semiconductors, and what they're making is the, the trailing edge, the, the trailing technology. Um, so you're more generic commodity chips. Um, if you're a U.S.-based business building those chips, I would, I would be concerned. Mm. You'll see them in the export market. Good. Well, listen, everyone stay well, stay healthy. We'll, we'll try to think over the next week what we really think about bundling and whether there's any investment opportunities here. But we promise next Wednesday it'll just be five minutes of the 30. In the meantime, uh, everyone take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the hosts alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.